let's say you're playing an instrument that's not your first instrument. Let's say you're playing bass, right? And you're like, oh, I really want to learn this thing. And you keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And you're used to doing that on the vibes, and you can because you know your limitations. But right. all of a sudden, it's just like, hey. I got a nerve thing. What's the nerve that goes all the way down? Is that called the ulnar nerve? Is that mm, possible? It starts with an M. I, I don't remember what it is. But I was getting numbness <gasps> in my finger. So I told my doctor, you know, my GP, and he just happened to have a nerve specialist in the office that day. And uh, she took a test and was like, yeah, we think you got a little problem here. Um, but it wasn't severe, so. I got some uh, like wrist support things, mm. and I think the cold weather was really affecting me too. You know, because once the weather got warm, I I, I get it occasionally mm -hmm. still, but it's not bad like it was. I mean, it was every night the tingling. You know, yeah, I'm just, just like I have to exactly, do this when I wake up. Exactly, know? it just add that to the stresses, uh, normal stresses of a musician. You know, tingling your hands because the psychological wormhole that you can go down or rabbit hole you can go down with that is pretty pretty endless. You know, sure, sure. And I went a long time with no problems. You know, even with the vibes and playing drums. Then the first thing was I started getting some pain in the elbow joint from the vibraphone because mm -hmm. I was holding heavy mallets and I was mm -hmm. holding four of them. But I went years, I mean, I went a couple decades with like no problems. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, starting to get up there. How old are you now? 46. 47, 52. You're 52. When yeah. we were playing together, I remember thinking like you and Willard were older cats. <laughs> and you really weren't that much older than me, but at that point, I was like, 30 and you guys were 35 or 36 and but to me the experience that you guys had 1998 so I was 37 yeah it was a world removed from me and yeah. that you know your experience was just like you know because the quote unquote generation that you came from and I'd like you to talk a bit about when you you grew up in Youngstown you, you went to New York you went to Berkeley School of Music right. you, you really were a part of the I don't want to say someone's a part of a specific group because it's easy to say that looking from the outside. Yeah. In, but no, you, you were to a it. part of the of that generation of people like um, the Marsalis brothers and Absolutely. Tane and um, who else? Uh, Donald Cindy Harrison, Blackman. Cindy Blackman, uh, and some other interesting people you might not think. Amy Mann was there. Get out of here! I love Amy Mann. And. She looks, her look is so distinctive. That's why I always remember. It's not like we knew each other, but I just remember seeing her all the time and, and I knew her name. So it was Amy Mann, uh, Steve Vai was there. Really? Who, at the time, I had no consciousness that he was there. I found out later, then I looked at the years, I said, wow, this is the same time I was there. So Steve Vai was there, but yeah, it was Branford, uh, Tane, Greg Osby, Wallace Roney, um, Cindy Blackman, Tommy Campbell, Kevin Eubanks, oh, Minnie wow. Smith. Uh, yeah, it was it was a good yeah. run. It was scary for me, you know, because my whole thing was I, when I got out of high school, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know. I felt like I wasn't ready to be a quote unquote professional musician, mm -hmm. but I put all my eggs in that basket, you know, it's just I needed more time. Mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not ready to get out there. Even though I was doing gigs, like little local yeah. stuff, you know, I wasn't, 
I wasn't, I wasn't ready for the next step. So my friend was my band director. He was just out of college. So we were like buddies, you know, he was like 22 years old. Check out Berkeley. It, it answered all the problems because it was an accredited college and uh, it was music. So right. that's how I wound up there. And the thing about Berkeley at that time is anybody could get in. There were no auditions, you know. Yeah, but I have a feeling you weren't anybody at that point, though, because... Well, you know, people, looking back, I think they, they saw the potential. Mm-hmm. They saw that I had talent, but I was definitely among that group of people I just named. I was definitely low, low man on the totem pole, <laughs> you know, because I, I couldn't really improvise. I just saw a totem pole with all you guys' faces on the bottom. <laughs> I'm at the bottom. I'm at the bottom. I couldn't really improvise. I, you know, I had no concept of harmony. In, in a theoretical sense, I had no idea how to connect chords, you know. At that time, I was still, in my mind, I was still a drummer, mm-hmm. still a drummer. But I was playing vibes, so I got kind of pushed into these situations I wasn't ready for. You so know? you went there as a drummer, ostensibly, is that? Drums and vibes. Okay. And, you know, I was a singer as well, because, I, you know, growing up, the vocal group thing was still really hot when I was mm-hmm. growing up. So I had done a lot of that variety shows and... Tell, tell me about when you grew up in Youngstown, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that Youngstown was still at that point not in its industrial, like strong blue collar heyday, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that there still was some of that going on. Well, when I grew there up... There still was a scene. There still was music. There still were people who would pay to go to clubs. Um, when I was growing up, Youngstown was definitely in its industrial heyday but it ended right when I graduated Mm. high school my father got out in 1979 which was the year I graduated high school he was still a worker Mm. like lifelong Mm. you know luckily you know he got his retirement benefits and everything but uh, that's right when it ended right when I was coming out of high school so growing up it was still like a flourishing kind of thing but uh you know, my life was so sheltered. I I wasn't I wasn't privy to what was going on on like the nightclub scene because you know essentially back then the clubs were just they were just bars they were mm-hmm. just joints and a lot of unsavory sure. things were going on. Sure. You know, and my folks didn't want me involved in that. Yeah, and every musician they knew was what they call used to call a jack leg musician. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> I haven't heard that term. It's just not. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're not sure, like sure. A reputable citizen or of something. Course, it has course. a negative connotation. Yeah, Jack yeah, Leg musician. Yeah. It wasn't really a con- uh, 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 comment on their musicianship so much. Yeah, it was just. More it's just the lifestyle. Milieu. So yeah, yeah, right, right. Sure. They didn't want me in that, you know. And it was, there were some really seedy joints and scary. You know, Youngstown was kind of a violent town, big mafia presence, and that's uh, what's his name came from there. Um, Dean Martin. Steubenville. Steubenville. Oh, Dean's okay. from Steubenville. But uh, similar vibe. Similar. So, um, no, the gigs I did, I did some stuff with the vocal group. I did a lot of free stuff. And then I joined this trio called the Ari Mae Morton Trio. She's a piano player. Really good piano player. Song stylist. Play locked hands. Style mm-hmm. piano. And I would play drums. Sometimes I played vibes with her. Again, I didn't know what I was doing on vibes. So that was very limited. You know, I remember getting together with her. Her husband played trumpet. They were originally originally from the Chicago area. 
and they had like a lot of experience from back in the day and they knew all the gangsters and stuff once again wow. the mob thing that's wow. like a big con sure. continuous theme among employers right right and they made that clear those were guys that employed us and they would mm -hmm. put a gun on the piano and say play this Woo. yeah so they, they actually live that stuff you know they're gone now they're deceased wow but, uh, so you're talking in the 40s and the 50s probably is when they were doing that. Sure, sure. But that's incredible that you had that experience. Because it is. That's that's like you can't, it doesn't matter how much you pay, you're not going to learn that at Berkeley. Right. Doesn't matter. And she loved me. Erin Morton, she loved me. I mean, she was just, <laughs> I never had anybody love me like that for the way I played. Wow. Because I played music. Outside of her, everything was a fight, you know, because, mm -hmm. again, it was the jack leg musicians. We don't want sure. you to be that. You yeah. know? This was supposed to be a little hobby. Don't get carried away with it. Gotcha. But Era Mae Morton was the first person that loved me because I was a musician. Mm -hmm. She really tried to nurture that and inspire me. So I would play drums with her, and we would sing. My friend Fred Irvin was bass player. He's still back in that area playing bass, sounding great. And we would do our little three-part harmonies, and we'd do our take on jazz harmony. We would sing what we could hear, and she would help us along uh -huh. with it, with her voicings. And uh, we would do, I think the first gig I did was on somebody's tennis court for a party. Then we, we would play at the college, you know, YSU, had Dana School of Music, which has a great reputation. A lot of great musicians came out of there. We would play in their student lounge, and those were my first gigs. Those were my That's first awesome. paying gigs, playing drums. But playing vibes with her, I remember distinctly, I had learned Misty in the key of A. Uh -huh. And for, for those who don't know, the standard key for Misty is E flat. But I had no clue about that, that there were standard keys for tunes. Right. You know? So I came in playing Misty in A, and she, again, she loved me. She was very supportive. She was like, oh, that's a very bright key. I like that. I like Misty in A, where her husband was like, that ain't the key. Right, right. <laughs> he was like hard like that ain't it you gotta learn it in E flat especially yeah. if it's a horn player yeah know? right wow right. so and then and then we would play blues that's that's what I would play I would play whatever I learned on vibes in whatever key it was she would follow me and the blues and I remember she would always say oh well, well that's good you can play anything on the blues <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that was That's the first awesome. the first gigs. And you know, we never did any of the the bars or anything like that. So I, I really don't know what right. that scene was about. Right. You know, I had friends that were doing I had a friend that had a band and they opened for George Clinton when George Clinton came to Youngstown. Wow. And now he's he's got his doctorate degree in music, Milton Ruffin, he's in Columbus, Ohio. And uh he got on that academic path and he just kept going. I mean, he's still a brilliant musician, but uh Hey, that's okay. That's okay. You know, if you can make that work, and more power to you. Yeah, you know? that's what I say. That's yeah. What I say. Yeah. Wow. So then, when you you went from eighteen, nineteen years old, Youngstown to Boston, I mean, that's like culture shock. Yeah. I'm assuming pretty severe too. Yeah. You Especially if you said you were a sheltered kind of kid in that way. Absolutely. I could assume it was like the kid in the candy store which isn't always the best thing but sometimes it is a good thing yeah well you took the words right out of my mouth it was culture shock I mean totally because uh, well first it was a music thing it was the excitement of meeting some people my age who had been raised in the music basically you know you had people who had been basically studying music from the time they were children with people who really knew what they were doing 
you know. When I got to Berkeley, I didn't, I wasn't familiar even with the terminology, ear training, harmony. I was like, I don't know what that is, <laughs> you know, solfege. I'm like, what? You know, but my friends, they came in knowing all this stuff, right. you know, and they would get advanced. At that time, that was the thing about Berkeley. You didn't have to audition to get in, but once you got in, then you took an audition for your placement. Hmm. So some, you know, some guys would place very high and, you know, some guys would be in the beginning classes, you know, depending, you know, on, on your, your prior experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it was that, so that was inspiring, but it was scary because it's like, well, where do I fit in? You know, I knew I had some talent and they, my friends, they seemed to acknowledge it on some level and kind of take me in. And then, and, and then again, there was the black community at Berkeley because we were, again, a minority, so we kind of embraced each other. So I was taken into that family. But uh, in my mind, I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm not ready. I mean, I came there to get ready, but I wanted to be a little further along, Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't. And it was just a stark realization when you hear, you know, Smitty Smith talk about Max Roach records and play the solos for you and <laughs> play the Philly Joe solos and you hear Branford playing he was playing alto saxophone at that time you hear Branford learning Charlie Parker solos and this guy Wendell Brooks who was like this brilliant player out of Houston, Texas he's back I've in Texas him. now yeah, yeah. I've heard him. he's one of these guys that you could play anything and he could play it right back to you Whew. Annoying as hell, yeah, but brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he's not an annoying person, but just the fact That's that somebody can yeah. do that is very yeah. annoying after a while. Because when you're 18 and 19, you know, right. cats do it to like really show yeah. off. So, uh, you know, there but, was there was that. He was playing Countdown. He was he he had learned trained solo at like 19 years mm-hmm. old, mm-hmm. and this this blew my mind. I mean, I hadn't yeah. even considered the possibility that a cat my age could do that. Right. And here it was slapping me in my face. You know? But you have to think of that, and, and this is kind of a refrain we talk about again and again, but you have to think about people who have kind of an unfair advantage in a lot of ways. Did mm. you grow up in a household where your dad was Ellis Marsalis? Not at all. Or did you, you know what I mean? Right, and, right. and Or did you grow up in a situation where, I mean, you were an outlier, I'm assuming, in your family. You probably were one of the, maybe someone in your family played a little bit or something like that, but there was no one to tell you, like, this isn't all mystery and magic. There's actually science right. behind it as well, right? So you got there and, and everyone else had the science down and to you it was probably magic at that only magic it was yeah point. it was still it was still magic I, I hadn't unlocked I had I had the key to unlock all the mysteries at that point you know I had taken drum lessons you know back in Ohio they used to have drum teachers or music teachers different instruments in the department stores <laughs> that's where it was yeah. so that's where I started taking drum lessons and you know I learned my hands are still good to this day because oh, you yeah, know I, I practice rudiments I mean, I learned all the rudiments and did some set drumming, and that's where I started learning scales on the vibes. But uh, that was it. I mean, again, no theory, no harmony. I mean, I learned all the scales. Yeah. So I had those memorized. I knew my major scales. I knew minor scales. Um, And I learned to read simple melodies from a trumpet book. Right. You know. But uh, that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Not knowing anything. Yeah, yeah. But then you go through Berkeley, you do all that stuff, 
you end up in Brooklyn at a time when, because I remember hearing your stories in the van about about Brooklyn, and you were, I think, seven years older than me. Mm-hmm. It's a at that point, it's a huge difference. I mean, I talk to people who are seven years younger than me, and in our world, this music world, there was a window of opportunity that really was very slim for your generation, seven years older than me. We're in the same generation, but when I say generation, I use it loosely to mean like a certain kind of group of people that had, uh, if not a a kind of a, a not a union, union, but a a loose community of Mm -hmm. people with the same kind of musical goals, similar musical goals. You guys, that it was it was this open this much for me. It was open this much, and I got in. For these guys now, it's not open anymore. It's a different. Wow. It's a whole different world for them. It is. So it is. for I think for some people they would love to hear because I remember you talking about what it was like to live in Brooklyn at that time, and I was getting those records. <laughs> um, you know, I was getting the the uh, you know stuff with all those guys all those guys on it and the right. M-Bass thing right. and the stuff that predated that stuff you know um, I mean talk about what that was like when you for, and it must have been scary as hell to move to Brooklyn at like what 22 23 years old or something like that it wasn't that scary it wasn't that scary because I had friends there already mm-hmm. and my mother's brother lived in Brooklyn ah so when I first came to Brooklyn, I went to Ebbetsfield houses where they lived. My uh, my uncle and my aunt uh, stayed with them for a little bit. Uh, as I think back on it, I'm probably getting some of the chronology mixed up because I would come to New York and then go back to Ohio. I came back. When I finally settled here, I got a studio apartment on Lafayette and South Portland in Fort Greene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Which was a different Fort Greene. Yeah, when then. I came, it was still like hookers and muggings. Yeah. You know, drugs, still the crack era. Uh, probably the beginning of the crack era. Mm. Well, I got there in '83, so somebody else You're can do the history. Right in the that. swing, deep in the heart <laughs> of it, right there. Because yeah. I remember, you know, I used to visit my father in the summers. He lived in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. in what they called then they just called Borum. Now they call it Borum Heights, and he lived right next. His house was the there was a bodega, mm-hmm. a house, and then his house. Yeah. And then the Wyckoff houses were across the street, which that is where area. that group Houdini came from, with the freaks come out at night, and mm-hmm. that was big. And I remember being it, staying with him, and you would hear the gunshots, and there were the... the plack plack Oh, all of the drug stuff was going on. But it, it never worried me in terms of like, yeah, sure, I was scared of it, I wasn't an idiot, but it was definitely felt like they'll see this young you know, kid who obviously doesn't belong, and then eventually they see you enough times, you belong, yeah. and you know the deal, they know the deal, you, you know, and, sure. and everything sure. is everything is okay, but now, you know, I go to where he used to live, and it's like the sto- kind of stores that have like two pairs of jeans in them, you know? <laughs> You only have two ah. pairs of jeans in your shop. I can't even. I go get in. it. Right. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so you you moved to Fort Greene. Yeah, I got mugged. I got mugged one one night. Uh, I was on my way to the Jazz Cultural Theater, which was a place Barry Harris opened in Chelsea, and uh, they would have after hours jam sessions, and uh, I was just so fixated on the music in my mind, and I was singing things in my head. I went down on Lafayette Avenue. Subway station, A train, 
And it had to be, I don't know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning maybe because it was really, really after hours jam sessions. And unlike today, New York was really the, the city that never slept back then. Mm, mm. You know, I mean, because you, you could be out easily till sunrise, like doing stuff, yeah. you know, hanging out, you know, coming from Bradley's or whatever. Right. And you didn't have to work 70 hours a week. You know? You had all that time to do stuff at night. Well, well that's another <laughs> story. Because I got a job like almost immediately when I came to New York. I started working at ASCAP. So I was doing the nine to five thing and mm. the hang thing. And I would go to ASCAP. I worked at ASCAP. I was a music monitor. And I just remember falling asleep at some point in the day, every day Ooh. at ASCAP. And I, it was just a matter of when it was going to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, my immediate supervisors like sat right next to me. This guy, yeah, I'll never forget him, Harry Leto, because he was a real kind of laid back, kind of almost like a what you imagine Dean Martin to be, speaking of Dean Martin right. earlier, that kind of, not a boozer, but <laughs> right, just kind of real laid back personality, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. cool, take it as it comes. Wasn't a whole pressure thing, but the thing I know about Harry is he would fall asleep every day too. So he wasn't going to really... So yeah, that kind of took the it. pressure, he just kind of <laughs> chuckle at it, you know. But uh, I know I'm all over the place. But no, when no. I think of that ASCAP experience, you know, Gary Harris worked there, Harry Weinger worked there, Gwendolyn Quinn. These are all people who are like big in the music business mm. now. Like Gwen Quinn is like a really heavy publicist. Aretha Franklin, Smokey, Norfolk, mm. Whitney Houston when she was alive. Uh, Harry Weinger, serious archivist, you know, he does a lot of the, you know, uh, collections that we know on Rhino Records. And okay. kind of labels. Oh, that's him. Okay. Yeah. We all worked at ASCAP together. And, and you know, Gary's a record man. Gary Harris is a record man as well. We were all there at the same time, mm. you know. And they've all done, you know, great. Because, you know, we were always doing, like, entry-level jobs back then, you know. It's, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, we stay at Ebbets Field Houses, and I got a, uh, uh, um, an apartment on Lafayette and South Portland, Fort Greene. Uh, I knew Jeff Watts. We were friends, and he was in Fort Greene already. So he said, you know, why don't you check this out? Check out this neighborhood. It's close to Manhattan still affordable at that time you know because it wasn't a great neighborhood at that time yeah it was just the beginnings of starting yeah. to climb yeah. up but just the very beginnings started climbing like i said still hookers on my corner um but uh man a lot of musicians started to come in bit by bit i mean you know marcellus brothers were already there you know and when marcellus became this big new thing it was like a trend you know the neo classicists or whatever mm -hmm. of jazz you know and it was successful it started to make a buck in Columbia Records George right. Butler uh, you know Miles had come back out uh, you know and then the M-Base thing started I was at the first M-Base meeting Graham Haynes Cassandra Steve Coleman uh, Smitty probably Greg Osby as well Greg right? was there uh, and you know they just had this idea and it was funny because it wasn't so much about the music it was about how to do something that the Marcelluses weren't doing mm -hmm. and get some attention There's what can we do market share right what yeah. can we do differently market share you but got that's it. pretty savvy they were very savvy I'm looking back on it I mean we bumped heads on a lot of things that's why I didn't wind up being one of the in-base people because you know certain things just didn't yeah I don't even remember specifically what didn't lay right with me, but for some reason we were bumping heads. 
But I remember they had a whole plan, you know, and it included having someone in the press who I think wound up being Peter Watchers, perhaps, mm -hmm. have a friend in the press who could write all the favorable yeah. reviews because yeah. they had taken that model from Winton yeah. having Stanley Crouch. Someone like taking notes from Goering's book, man. <laughs> <laughs> propaganda <laughs> stuff, right? Wasn't he the propaganda guy? Oh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I can't remember. You got me. But, um, yeah, they were really savvy. I mean, looking back on it. It worked, and it worked for a while. Yeah, sure it did. And on some level, it's still working. For, yeah. for certain individuals, mm -hmm. I mean, because mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think Greg Osby has to give a lot of credit to them. You know? Yeah, and Steve is like a legend. You know, he's like a legend and a genius. I mean, I don't really know his music. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he's one of those cats you hear a lot about him more than yeah. you hear his music. Well, it's a whole different hustle, right? I mean, you definitely have two very distinct hustles going on. I, I think, and if you're really pulled towards the kind of academic grant writing hustle mm -hmm. that's the pot of gold I mean there's a mm -hmm. lot of money in that world a lot of money really? and if you are the right archetype mm -hmm. that somehow works with either their paternalistic thing they like to do or they want to have you teach in their liberal arts college in Vermont or whatever it is because you're adding a certain amount of spice to their thing or whatever it is if you can somehow manage to go that that route and really make it work for you mm -hmm. that's a whole world of thing I've never been able to make it work for me I can't I mean I'm just not that person you know I but see. that's just not I mean I wish I was I wish I was savvy enough to do that I wish I could figure out how to like make like say oh well this is like my uh the record i'm doing now is like a um you know it's it's a, a, the jewish peoples i'm pulling on my jewish heritage <laughs> to uh tell you this is music from the shtetl and it's a uh, modern new york meets the shtetl of russia the except shtetl we're all going to be wearing hot pants you know if you can manage to do something like that and you could put some kind of ethnic ethnic kind of uh thing on it that sure. kind of pulls their strings. Basically, if you can find a way to dehumanize yourself enough <laughs> that they enjoy it, then you got it. But that, but having said that, yeah. that's a totally legitimate hustle. And any one of my musical brethren or sisters who somehow managed to get that, I'm like, more power more to power you. Because to you. we right. deserve that money. And if I'm not getting it, it's fine. I'd rather someone that I know even if they're not my best friend and I don't love their music, I'm happy that they got it. Sure. You know? Same here. Because there's Same a lot here. worse places that money can go. But what is a shtetl? That is the first time that's, I've uh, ever heard that That's word. like, you know, in the pale of settlement, you know when they say something's beyond the pale? Mm -hmm. Well, the you know what the pale of settlement was? It's basically where the czar would and Dorn, uh, super Jew can correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> while you're editing this. Um, it's because I'm only half, you know. The, it's the, basically from Odessa in the south to Vilnius, Latvia, or Lithuania, sorry, in the north, there was this long, I don't know, what is that, 2,000 mile kind of pale, what they called the Pale of Settlement, which is essentially where Jews were allowed to live. I see. And the shtetl is like a little village. And apparently they were all the same. I mean, my grandfather, 102-year-old guy, at his 100-year-old birthday party, he gave up and gave a speech that was pretty moving, just off the cuff, yeah. talking about how grateful he was that his parents left the shtetl in Eastern Europe so that he could grow up here in New York City and blah, 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 blah. But, but that's the shtetl anyway. Gotcha. Yeah, not, not really a very hopeful place. Right. right. Not, a lot, <laughs> not, not a lot going on. 
I got you. How's the mud today? <laughs> How does the mud look, Shmuel? <laughs> oh my, here's another donkey, you know. Awesome. But anyway, having said that, I digressed. I totally derailed <laughs> your train of thought. You're getting back to the base thing to Brooklyn and Brooklyn the mid eighties. Yeah, so you know, I was I was really you know, at one point I thought I was Branford's best friend. Uh, you couldn't have told me that I was not Branford Marcellus's best friend. <laughs> and we were, you know, we were tight because we lived not far from each other and we had known each other from college. But at that, t- I didn't know Branford was just that kind of person and that everybody thinks they're Branford's <laughs> best friend. <laughs> well, that's kind of good for him, I guess. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah. I mean, you can't, he's the kind of guy you got to love him. Mm-hmm. If you're around him, you got to love him. He's that kind of person. But, you know, I kind of misinterpreted it. You know, I was just like, man, this is my best friend. He wasn't, but he was one of my friends, and Winton was one of my friends as much as you can be Winton's friend, which can be hard. <laughs> I don't know him. I, I don't know him. I've never met him. He has some difficult edges to his personality. You know, you catch him in the right moment, he can be a very warm, nice yeah. person, but he goes... He goes to another place at mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't hung out with him in like decades. You know, mm-hmm. probably, probably fifteen, maybe twenty years. So I don't know what he's about at this point. Sure. But uh, back then we were hanging out a lot. You know, and you know I was good friends with Tane and Osby, all of us. I mean, because other than Winton's group, I mean, everybody was basically trying to carve out something. We hadn't, est- no one else had really established mm-hmm. anything. They were, they were on their way, you know. M-Base thing began to take hold. Um, you know, Spike Lee was in the neighborhood. His thing was beginning to take off. Yeah, that was another thing I was going to ask you about as, as well, because that was a big part of that whole Brooklyn kind of... Yeah, I, I, for some reason, I just had a knack for bumping heads with a lot of people. I mean, I had a lot of friends, but, you know, I just got, kind of bumped heads with Spike. You know, which got awkward at a certain point because the music community kind of bonded with Spike's thing, you know, through Branford, which became mm-hmm. Terrence, became mm-hmm. uh, Spike's main music go-to guy. Right. You know, and which uh, was not a bad hustle, not a bad move on his part. It was great for all concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, enough said. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> but um. You know, because I had bumped heads with Spike, you know, I was kind of not in that. You know, I was kind of not in the inbase right. thing. But I, I had gotten signed to Columbia. Through, yeah, through, uh, I wanted Doctor, to ask you about that. Through Dr. George Butler, I I think because I had sat in with Winton. Branford left to play with Sting in 1985, and Winton was wondering what he was going to do. So he was considering vibes. So, really? Wow. Yeah, so I did the Village Vanguard with Winton one night and I just played a couple tunes mm-hmm. you know and once he heard the vibes he was like this is not what I want you know this is not gonna work but uh apparently George Butler was there one of the nights and he called me one day he said I want to take a meeting and I had just finished a demo you know so I said I'm gonna have this demo ready I'm gonna play it for you but it wasn't even about that for him it was about you know you fit the profile I want to sign you. Wow, wow. Yeah. But, if I may point out, therein lies the rub, because I know that record, Higher Fire, Mm -hmm. right? And there was another one, too. Survival of the Spirit. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just looked for those records on iTunes, and I just looked for it on YouTube, 
and I couldn't, it, did I not look correctly? Because I remember listening to it like 15, 16 years ago, and I, and, and I, could, I wanted to hear it again before I came here. Mm. But I remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, sure. all the records in that, that were coming out at that time, very, very pigeonholed records in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And yours was not, in my opinion, because there was singing on it, right. there was some different kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was not, it, it was, you were not raising a, a flag for any specific group that you wanted to be in. You were not saying, oh, I'm in solidarity with these guys that you see me with all the time, because there was soul, there was R&B on it, there was whatever you want to call it, the modern jazz of that time on it, but there also was some real pop sensibilities and by pop sensibilities I don't mean like trying to get over pop sensibilities I mean like Brill Building um, Ashford and Simpson that kind of writing sensibility was on that and I think that you probably really freaked them out when you <laughs> gave that because today that's commonplace sure okay but yeah. then I just want to point out to people listening to this that in 1983 84 is that well the, no the record came first record came out in 89 probably 89 well it was either you were here or you were there absolutely and that was it and talk to that if, if you don't mind for a minute if you feel well like yeah yeah it wasn't quite to the extent you described uh, the, the music on the record. I mean, I kind of was raising the flag. I just wasn't raising it very high for the uh, for kind of... They wanted me to be the Winton of Vibes. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a meeting with George and saying, I didn't want to be that. I don't want to be the Winton Marcellus of Vibes. And I think that kind of scared him. That kind of blew his mind because... Winton was hot. He was like, it sure. was the hottest thing sure. at that time, you know. So, and I told him I would like to do R and B records too. You know, I would like to venture into the pop side. And at one point, he asked me which one I wanted to do first. And um, looking back on it, you know, I said I wanted to do jazz thing first, but man, maybe that wasn't the right decision. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, it was my decision. Mm -hmm. So I did jazz record. He let me produce it. You know, he kind of balked at that at first. But you know, it's the thing when you're at a label like Columbia, certain artists, uh, they don't really invest that much energy into them, you know, or thought. It's just you know, A and R people have to sign a certain amount of people. Yeah, and they want to get you before anyone else does because if you do become the huge guy that they passed on, then. That's their problem. But in, in Dr. Butler's own words, like for uh, Harrison Blanchard, they had maybe three records out, and in his own words, he said, "We didn't do anything for them." Mm. Mm. You know, they had their own following, and they built on that. But the record company didn't do anything mm. for them, so he had to go to bat for them on the next record. He said, "We got to really try to make this happen." Because you know they've maintained a certain level without us. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I never even got to that point, you know, because I didn't have a following. You know, I, I I was I was just doing, I was just doing bar gigs in 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 New York, Brooklyn. You know, I, I was playing like some seedy places. I was playing all the kind of places that my parents didn't want me to play. <laughs> the jack yeah, 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 I just <laughs> I remember playing behind this red door. I mean, the place didn't have a name even. It was in the hood, and there were all these like 
thuggish characters, man. Like, like b-boys though. Really? Yeah. And I was playing. And I brought my vibes, and it was with this guitar player, Rodney was his first name. His brother was this guy Strafe, who did that song "Set It Off." Set it off, I suggest y'all set it on the left. Now nah, set it off. That was his brother. Anyway, so he got this gig, man, in the hood, and it was like this really scary place. Now, I was scared that mm -hmm. night because I just remember this big thuggish guy standing by the vibes and just looking at it like he had no clue what it was. Well, he was insulted he, by its very existence. Yeah, and he was kind of like tapping on it, you know, oh, and it was clearly God. like some shady stuff going on. But I was doing some gigs like that, you know. Mm. So needless to say, I didn't have a following in the jazz world. So uh, I went to the studio. I fought to produce my own record, which, again, probably wasn't the best decision. You know, I wrote all the songs, which was a good decision. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, record came sonically. It could have been better. You know, I have regrets about that. But in terms of the material and the direction, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm happy with it. And to this day, people come up to me and compliment me about mm. this record. Like it came out five years ago yeah. or something. I'm like, do you know this was 25 years ago? But, you know, that doesn't matter to them. To them, it's like it was yesterday. Yeah. And it was, that is who I am to them. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I hear my voice singing on it. It's like, my voice is heavier now. It's mm -hmm. like, wow. Seems so long ago. You sound like a kid. Sound like a kid, you know. Well, you were. What were you in your I was. late twenties, mid to late twenties? Mid to late twenties. Yes, absolutely. You're a kid of kids at that point. And I was signed as an instrumentalist. George didn't know I was a singer, but I, again, I went into the studio on my own. So I said, I'm going to sing. Yeah. And uh, one of the records started getting play on what they had on a format they had at the time called Smooth Jazz. Which CD just 101. Started, right? Right. They were playing a song I wrote called What Is Love, which was just me at the piano. And it was kind of like a little, like a minor hit, you know? Mm. For people who listened, they were identifying Monty Croft with that. Like so. a regional hit, kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So they knew me from, from that more than anything else. And... Uh, that kind of calmed George down about the vocal thing because it worked. It worked. If, if so, whatever works is cool. Yeah. In the record yeah. business, you know, at that time, well, I mean, I don't know what the record business is today, if there is one. <laughs> but at that time, if you did something and it worked, it was cool, whatever it mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it was like no support from the label whatsoever. And someone or some people at the label began to actually not like me <laughs> for some reason. So it became a thing of like, it wasn't a team anymore. It was like a, an adversarial relationship mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between me and, and the record label. We wanted to do a release party. We were doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. My manager and I, we had planned it and we were good to go. And then Columbia stepped in and said, you don't have to do it, we'll do it. And then, and then they canceled it. Oh. <laughs> We, we gave up the reins to them, yeah. and then they squashed it. Yeah. So it was a lot of stuff like that, even stuff like, you know, the That's album cover different. and, you know, the date was approaching when we were going to do the photo shoot. I'm like, do we have a concept for the album cover? Oh, we'll do something with light. That was the line. <laughs> we'll do something with light. I said, okay. What is that supposed to mean? Well, uh, yeah, I hope there was some light involved. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. they, you know, they never Negative had a plan. Space. They just booked this place, this apartment, basically, and they, they didn't have a plan, you know? Yeah. But you know, that's 
that happens happened because doesn't that paradigm doesn't really exist anymore right but you know that stuff is like you really put when you're anything can happen and it's it is the farthest thing from a meritocracy and when you put your eggs in that basket because that's really what you're supposed to do that that's not you know you're supposed to do that if you're a musician sure then you you don't realize like oh wait a minute this isn't just like you know there are actual people here and you know what they really most of them really half of their time is spent in a machiavellian pursuit right. to keep their own job and their own status and they're going to do whatever is best for that and when you have like 20 people working in a company and they're doing that well you know they're like it really is like crack addicts or something it's just like you know you can have marvin Gaye in this corner and you know whoever else you want and all of a sudden someone has cocaine on the other side of the room and says whoa everyone goes over there so they go mm-hmm. to the path that has the least resistance exactly. so they always go the path of least resistance so basically if monty croft's record comes out at the same time as Wynton marsalis's record or um, let's say Peebo Bryson or whoever was on the label Harry that Connick. time, Harry Connick's record, right. then sorry. But it could have just as easily been, oh, this is great because we don't have any releases for the next three months, and all of a sudden, you're a household name. Right. You never know. I mean, Will Bernard, I don't know if you know Will, he's a great guitar player. In the 90s, he put out a record on Verve, and it was, he's a really great writer, great tunes, great guitar playing, you know, very much like very composer, but with like upright bass, organ, and drums and guitar. But very composed music, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of groove and stuff on it. And it was really, it was like my favorite guitar record of that year. It was about 96, 97. Well, John Schofield was on Verve at that time, and he put out a record with, I think, like Medeski, Martin, and Wood at the same time, which we were touring with him at that time. That so that record came out, and they took the path of least resistance. And I love Schofield. I think he's great, but that's not anywhere near his his best record yet this Will Bernard record was really a gem mm. but that one was just like see ya and like no phone calls return and then five months later drop from the label and it's just like that that there are more stories like that than but there I, are I'll give you success one. stories I went into jazz radio promotion at Columbia and uh Kevin Gore was their man he was a kid man he was like in his early 20s and his job was jazz radio promotion. I walk into his office and he hands me the first Mariah Carey CD. I'm like, what is this? He's like, he's like oh, it's great. You got to check it out, man. Go home and listen to it. It's great. That was company line. You know? Yeah. She was the boss's old lady. Right. Yeah. Right. If you don't do that, Stalin's going to send you to the, work camp. This was from the jazz guy. Though, yeah. You know? Yeah. He wasn't supposed to be concerned with any of that stuff, yeah. but it's what you're saying. And, you know, the other thing you noticed, I mean, is that it's a different mentality. I mean, their their reality was so much different than our reality is. And by ours, I mean anyone. It doesn't matter how high you're flying, unless you're a mega flyer. Sure. When you're, like, you still... You're, you're, you have a peaks and valleys. You, you know, you have these ups and downs throughout your career. It doesn't matter. Those guys... If we ran our lives the way they ran theirs and their companies, we'd all be on the street, I mean, as Mm. musicians, because they just don't... If you want to be a musician, you have automatically 
decided that you're totally fine with a life of pushing a van uphill with the road going the opposite direction and all your loved ones throwing objects at you. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're not doing that. So they they don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm a soldier. I better get out there and soldier on and figure out what's good, what's waiting for me in the bush or here or there. They get up and they think like, oh, maybe I'll go down to work today and... Let's see, it'll be a little stressful because Chad is going to be telling me something about, oh, the, you know, and, and maybe they have their Machiavellian thing. I'm not saying they don't work hard, but their entire paradigm is totally different than ours. Right. So how can we be served by that? It's yeah. the opposite. It should be the opposite. Sure. But now we don't have that problem. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. That's we over. Don't. We don't. <laughs> When you you had all that stuff, and then you started gigging, because I'm I, I remember certain things. You started doing gigs, or you were on tour with Gino Vanelli. Yeah. Like, how did you come into that? Gino Vanelli. That was ninety five, ninety six, uh-huh. somewhere around there. Uh, Bruce Barth, who had played on my second record, fine, great piano player. Yeah, one of yeah one of the best piano players. Um, was in Bradley's one night and Gino Vanelli was in Bradley's and he was asking around, do you know any vibraphones? Wow. Because he wanted to do, for those of you who are not familiar with Gino's music, it was kind of like a progressive R&B, rock, vocal music. Very hip musically, good songs. Gino's great singer. But for this tour, upcoming tour and record, I think he had made the record already. He wanted to do his version of jazz, Uh small group jazz. And um, he heard vibraphone as part of that sound. So he was in New York asking around, actually for piano and vibes. Mm. So Bruce Bruce gave him uh, my number or had me call him. I forget how it went down. I think I called him. And he's like, can you send me something? Send me a tape. So scrounge around for a tape. I had a cassette, you know, we were still using cassettes in 90. Yeah, of course. 96. I sent him a cassette of uh, a gig I did at the Blue Note with my band when I was doing the Columbia thing. And um, and he loved it, you know. He liked the energy and then I told him, you know, I can sing too. He said, well, that's good because I probably need some background vocals, a few things. And uh, that's how the whole thing kicked mm. off. And he flew me out to Portland where he lived and I think still lives. You know, his wife's from Portland. Mm. And uh, we started rehearsing. You know, we did Montreal Jazz Festival as a small group with no drums. And then later we did a bona fide tour with full group, mm-hmm. drums, bass, piano and vibes, and saxophone. Mm. The great Phil Dwyer on saxophone, my man. And... Uh, yeah, it was that was an interesting experience. Gino, another kind of tough personality yeah. at times, you know. Very very talented guy though. I got it. You know, all his music is really him. You know, for those who are familiar with his music, they know he worked with his brother Joe mm. for a long time. So I think a lot of people assume that Joe was the brains behind the operation, but all that music was Gino. Mm. You know, Joe's function was kind of to edit him. You know, when things got things got kind of long mm-hmm. or you know, maybe a little difficult for the listener. That's when Joe would step in yeah. and say, we, we need to cut that. And by the time I was working with Gino, Joe wasn't working with him anymore. So I got to witness that it was all Gino, you know. 
His problem is, uh, aside from, I won't get into some personality stuff, but he was a micromanager uh -huh. in terms of the music. I mean, he would never rest. I mean, he would come up with these intricate arrangements, and he didn't write anything down physically. He'd had he'd ask one of us to do it, uh, and I said no. No, said, because you with you the second you start that, the second you say yes, then that's that's it. But we had a Otmaro Ruiz on piano, who's a brilliant piano player out in L.A., and uh, you know it's it just goes with Otmaro's personality, you know, uh, and he enjoys. Right. So he became Gino's transcriber for that tour. And, but, you know, I told Gino, no, I'm like, that's another gig. Yeah. I, I'm having enough trouble just memorizing all this stuff because right. we couldn't have any music on stage. So what we would do, we would rehearse in the day, and he would come up with all these intricate arrangements, and he would be working it out at the piano as we would go, you know. But just, like, chord on every mm -hmm. beat, you know, like oh voicing God. for everything, yeah. you know. That kind of arranging, and you know, he did have to do some quasi uh, classical thing here. And then he wanted to get a jazz vibe here, and it was very demanding, especially because we had to memorize. So what I would do, I would go in his studio at night and memorize what we had learned from that day. But then the next day, he would change everything. Oh God, I he would change do that. everything. He would I'm wipe fired it out from that gig already. <laughs> oh, it was oh, it was so challenging. And it never stopped. Oh I mean, God. by the last gig, we were down to, I think, a two-hour sound check. Oh. And he was still changing the arrangements. Wow. After, like, three months. Wow. Yeah. Man. A tough gig. That's tough. Yeah. No, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. And, I, you know, and it's been kind of the story of my life, you know, because growing up, I had, like, a high awareness of who Gino Vanelli was, you know. And when I was at Berkeley, he was one of the, Mm -hmm. go-to people everybody was like Frank Zappa was really popular in Berkeley then you had the traditional jazz cats you right know? and uh, and then you had like Gino Vanelli people and Earth Wind and Fire people you mm -hmm. know? so he was way up there but by the time I got with him you know I would tell people I'm going on the road with Gino Vanelli and I get this blank look like who is Gino Vanelli right. you know you're going out with who Right. Is it a football player? Exactly. <laughs> no. He no. had his he had his uh, his era kind of thing. Well, people remember I just wanna stop and tell right. you what I feel. So right. that's usually what I would wind exactly. up doing. I'd yeah. sing a few bars and say, like, Yeah, yeah, I remember Gino yeah. But it was just such a disappointment because I was so excited to be with him and then rarely would anybody, you know, share yeah, in my joy be like, hey, because they wouldn't know who he was. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. And you know, I went out with Average White Band last year. Oh yeah, I was seeing that in your posts. Yeah. You were playing like it seemed to me like every time I would turn around on Facebook it was like you were in Average White Band but you were playing a different instrument. Well on they, it or something. Sometimes well they always it was keyboard. Sometimes you were playing bass. Right. Like, what was it? Well that that's the gig. That's the gig because they always switched off. Oh, okay. Even when they were in their heyday, because uh, the lead singer, uh, Alan Gorey, plays bass most of on most oh, of the things. Okay. But on certain things, he plays guitar. And he would switch off with Hamish Stewart. Okay. And uh, Roger Ball, the saxophonist, would play some keyboards. All right. So they hired me mainly to play keyboards, but they needed somebody who could play guitar and bass as uh -huh. well. So that was that gig. So most of the night I was playing keyboards. I had to learn maybe seven things on bass. Any given night we'd do three of those. Okay. And I did two things on guitar, uh, pick up the pieces and um, 
That's awesome to start Person to person <laughs> And I was playing the line <laughs> Oh yeah Go Monty Because when we played together You didn't play guitar No yeah. I started playing when I was 40 That's fantastic I like, love When that. I saw my kid I, When I saw how an infant learns That inspired me Yeah To learn a different way Because oh, once you've been great. in academia You kind of get rigid In how you learn things And right. I was like No let me just do it, you know, because yeah. I said my son was starting to learn how to talk and he didn't know what he was saying a lot of times. And he, he would get certain phrases where he realized he would get a certain result if he yeah. said a certain thing. So yeah. I said, well, let me let me approach guitar like that. And I was a little more systematic about it because I knew all these great guitar players and the, the, you and, you know, yeah, but you also, 40 other cats. And had, I would just you, pick your brains. You also had much more to bring to the guitar than most guitar players do anyway that are starting out, especially, you know? Yeah, but I didn't understand it, you know, because I'd always loved guitar. That was like one of my first loves. I mean, again, back in Youngstown, we would go to the department store. It would be like a Kmart store type store. But they had like real guitars. Yeah, like Sears Silvertones probably is what they had. And some other things. I mean, they had a wall of guitars. Wow, and in a department store. While my folks were shopping, that's where I would just just be oogling so the guitars for the whole thing, you know. So I had this unrequited love for it. But yeah. I didn't understand what was happening on guitar, what, are, what, what you guys were doing. Because yeah. I thought, you know, it was an eye-opener for me to know that guitar players played the bass note. On the guitar, uh -huh. and once I discovered that, it became a lot easier in my mind how to approach the instrument. Because right. before that, I thought voicings were just freeform. I uh -huh. just thought, you know, well, how do you know one chord from another? I said, well, if I'm playing the root, I'll always know yeah. what the chord is, yeah. and then from there, right, you can right. expand. And a, and a, a guitar player friend of mine gave me advice. He said, learn a couple voicings from the sixth string, a couple voicings from the fifth string for um, each chord type yeah and then just learn tunes so yeah. that's what I did and then it kicked the whole thing off sure. and then, then I began to understand what guitar was about a guitar is really and, I, and I've interviewed quite a few guitar players on this you can imagine right yeah it's the thing that's so cool about it and also so disenfranchising about it especially in the jazz world is it really is a, a folk instrument and it really is a vernacular instrument mm. yes you can do lots you you can make it as systematic as you want any instrument but look at the vibes look at the piano it doesn't get any more systematic than that look at the saxophone right. they make an instrument and then just because it's not already easy enough to read on it they put it so that almost all the notes are in the staff for you <laughs> and then if you switch to another one well, they're all in the same place again. You know, it's so systematic, you know, or, you know, you play the piano, it's, right, it's right. the same thing, you know. You, right. you, but guitar is so non-linear and so non-systematic and so, it's such a vernacular instrument. So much of it involves this very weird cross-cultural game of telephone that just goes on. And it's not... Though tuning is bizarre, I mean, it's mm. it's optimized for playing flamenco music, really. That oh, tuning, I didn't know that. It's called the Spanish guitar, you know. Oh, I see. And um, but then you'd have all these things, you know. You you'd have it come over here, and uh, you know, you'd have like these blues guys like Robert Johnson and mm -hmm. and um, you know, um, Blind Willie Johnson, Sunhouse, all these guys that were doing really, yeah, so you want to say it's a blue, but that's really complex stuff mm. that they're playing sure. on the guitar. I mean, that's some really high level 
shit guitar wise, right? So you have those guys, and then you have somebody like, you know, Doc Watson checking out what they're playing, mm -hmm. and then that comes around, and then you have these people like, you know, Albert King coming out with these licks, and then you have a guy like Cornell Dupree who really started mm -hmm. off as what you would call like a gospel guitar player, mm -hmm. and then you put those two guys together with some crazy jazzier stuff, and you get a guy like Jimi Hendrix coming out of that, you know, mm -hmm. and all these things bounce back and forth, and the steel guitar, and all these things, and you really don't have that in the jazz world, it's because it's not, it's an unwritten language. Mm. The jazz language, or at least what you can teach, which isn't always the most important aspect of it, is a written language. Yes. You know, and the guitar is not. Mm. It's a it's a oral tradition that's you. handed down, and it might not be handed down orally, but it's it's done by, like, hey man, did you check out this thing that that dude? Oh yeah, let me check out that thing that that dude did. Oh, and then you learn it, and and that's the world that I grew up in. I didn't grow up in a jazz world. I mean, there were jazz players around me, obviously, but my world was. My mom's record collection of all those old blues players and the guitar, mm. which is a different world. So when you get into the jazz world, even when I, I was pretty well along when I met you, still, it's a, the world, it's very much like an illiterate person coming into being around people who've read lots and lots of books. I get that. You know, and, and you have a certain power in the vernacular and the hundreds of people that came before you that handed it down to you. Yeah. but you still are always going to be on the outside a little bit. I got you. You know. Well, it was interesting to me. Well, the first thing was I never played an instrument that I had to tune. <laughs> <laughs> so that was mind-blowing. It made me look at guitar players entirely different. And even when you tune it, it's a bitch to play it in tune. Yes. You know, yes. really a bitch. Right. Got to be careful. Oh, man. How hard you press, where your fingers are, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, totally. You know. And depending on the guitar that you're playing. Absolutely. I had to learn that as well. You know, I got like cheap versions of every guitar I was interested in. You know, I got a Strat first. Then a friend gave me a deal on a 335 copy. Then I got my Les Paul, Epi Les Paul, Epiphone Les mm -hmm. Paul, Telecaster, you know, then uh tried an SG for a minute, which I really didn't like just because, you know, the neck would topple over. Yeah, it's, it's not balanced. It's, it's, you yeah. know, you can't let it go. Yeah. It's know? awesome for playing ACDC, but, but, <laughs> but it's rough. It's a rough guitar. Yeah, for sure. It's a it embraces some overdrive, for you sure. You know what SG stands for? Student guitar. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what the SG was for. Student guitar. It was their student model. That's so the Melody Maker came out. I think that was even more of a student model than the SG, but yeah, student guitar. I traded this kid. I mean, he was an adult, but really young adult. I traded my SG, which was a copy, for my telly, which is a, a really nice telly. I mean, not like an expensive one, but a really killing sound telly. Yeah. A Mexican. Listen, the beauty of Leo Fender's design, and, and he was a genius. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even a guitar player, you know? That's so it's, deep. He is really one of the deepest people in terms of industrial design because he basically just was like, well, how should it look? Oh, let's, let's do it this way and we'll make it this way and we need to have this many frets and the scale length should be this long. This is how, you, I mean, they did everything. He did, did radio, he was into radios, you know, making radio. They did the amplifiers, they did everything. But the beauty of his design is it was made to be utilitarian, but it was, it was still quality made, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing about those guitars is that nowadays they're doing everything by computer. 
mm. and you can get a really great guitar for 300 bucks. Yeah. When I was a kid, you could get a Fender Stratocaster for 300 bucks, mm -hmm. but I didn't have 300 bucks. Even though my mom worked in guitar, repairing guitars, I had 40 bucks. Right. So 40 bucks got you a Memphis guitar, which was a copy of a Strat, yeah. and it was an absolute piece of crap because it wasn't made on a computer. It was put together by someone who's probably like drunk at the end of the day in Korea or Taiwan, and they're just like hammering stuff together. It was awful. Right. But now, these days, so I, I wouldn't doubt you have a great guitar. Oh, it's you know? beautiful, man. Yeah. I love it. I mean, I, I bought an American telly after I got that one, and uh, I hardly ever played the American mm. telly. I mean, the the first telly is just superior. Yeah. It's just and a lot of times it's pickups too. And if you put a different set of pickups in it, changes the whole yeah. the whole thing. I well, I got good pickups in both of them. I think with these guitars, something about the weight uh -huh. and the wood. I, I I don't know which each one is uh, made of, but uh, well, I it's a little see. more weight on the Mexican telly, uh -huh. and it's a little more balls to it. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Let's finish this up, and then I want to go see him. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, you know, vibraphone. We, you know, we keep saying, "Oh, yeah, did this gig on vibes," but that is your instrument. That, in terms of, I would say most people. I say Monty Croft too. They know you for the vibraphone. Most people that sure. I say that too, and there here is an instrument which you know, is really kind of new in a lot of ways. It's Still, not mm -hmm. old. It's not really an old instrument. Right. And in a lot of ways, it has that systematic thing that you have with piano, but it really kind of is, in a lot of ways, can be viewed as a redheaded stepchild mm. because it's one of those instruments where even like, you know, I can name you 10 guys that are probably at or around your level. Guys, I would say, were the 10 guys in the world that are the guys on the vibes. Mm. 10. <laughs> That's funny, right? And there aren't enough that. gigs for them. Right. You're in that group of people, obviously. Yeah. And there aren't enough gigs. You know, it's just like, what a crazy thing. I mean, what? Yeah, well, sometimes I look at it and I'm like, why? <laughs> Why am I playing this instrument? But the funny thing now is, I would say 80, 85% of my jobs, maybe more, are on keyboards. Yeah. It's like when I get my own gigs, I don't even do vibes anymore. Really? Yeah. You're playing keys and singing. Playing keys yeah. and singing. It's like I got my brand. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I finally found my thing, you know? Yeah, there's a past, a present, and a future in that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it connects with the people in a way. Yeah. Vibes was always a challenge. I mean, physically it's a challenge moving it because I always brought my own instrument to jobs. Um, and putting a challenge it together. Building it. Putting it apart, taking it apart. I remember that every night. Oh, my God. Like, when I was out with Gino, man, he had the lighting guy building my vibes every night. Building is word for setting yeah, up yeah. the instrument. But it and, is and not a guy unlike broke. building. I mean, it's like an erector set. It is like yeah, an erector yeah. set. The guy broke my vibes, man. Not the whole, he broke the rod that connects the sustain pedal. Oh yeah, yeah. To the uh, to the frame, and we were like, I don't know where we were, man, but I had to call my man in Chicago to send me a new rod, like in the middle of a right. tour, because lighting guy he didn't he hated having that job, but Gina was like, you got to do this. Yeah. He can't be setting his vibes up and breaking them down every night. We right. Just, we just don't, don't roll. We just don't yeah, roll yeah. like that. 
and I don't have a big crew. Your job is to build right. the vibes and break them down. And he resented it. <laughs> so he, he was not, he didn't take care of my baby, my yeah. instrument, and he oh. broke it one day, uh. you know. But, you know, that's one of a million stories. I mean, there's just always something with vibes. People don't know what the instrument is. Mm-hmm. Uh, think it's a xylophone you know right. you always get the joke oh you should have played flute i mean every vibraphone player gets yeah. that joke on every gig right you know and then you have the people who want to tell you how to play because maybe they knew they were familiar with lionel hampton <laughs> so turn the vibrato <laughs> up really high yeah i mean you know yeah i mean i remember one night we played this uh this dive in brooklyn it was the the val how uh you know nasty little spot you know but it was right in right on my block right on uh lafayette avenue down the street from my crib literally down mm-hmm. the street so i would do some gigs in there i brought my vibes in there and uh i you know i i, I just remember we were playing like all these like tunes with all these changes we were playing like giant steps and all these standards and you know so i stand outside on the break and this one patron comes out and says something to me like you know, you you know you can play some harmony on that instrument too. I'm like what? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you get around on an instrument kind of fast, but you know you could play. You know you could do chords and stuff on. You could play harmony on the instrument. I was like, but we just. I mean, you can't even discuss something with some people, but you're just always encountering this kind of thing with right, vibes, right. and then and then it's the. Uh, 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 sound reinforcement what do you do well and here's a point I wanted to make because I think probably a lot of people listening to this probably have never heard vibraphones played Mm. right there Mm -hmm. and the thing about that the thing that disappointed me when we did pound for pound is that because I was playing an electric instrument you have to mic the vibes every night it never sounds good right it never you automatically can can erase 50% 50% of what's great about the instrument the second you put microphones on them. Yeah. And then you can compound what you've erased even more by putting it through a monitor that's mm. for facing the vibraphone player. So basically you're taking this instrument which is like one of these things where it, it has to be heard acoustically to be appreciated. Yes, I And the, the problem is, is that there came a point where, and myself included, uh, I've dialed it back quite a bit, but there comes a point where they came a point where the music just got louder and louder and louder, and the drummers got louder and louder and louder, and the acoustic mm-hmm. bass players even got mm-hmm. louder and louder. So basically, before you even build your vibraphone, which when you hear a vibraphone played by a master and you're right there, and it, it's magic. Oh, it is. It's magic. Yeah. I mean, because you're, it's a three-dimensional thing that's going on. There's all of these sounds. It's like, don't take acid when you hear that. You know what I mean? Mm. Because it really is, it's a magical experience. But the second, if you're a vibraphone player, it's even worse, way worse than a horn player. Because at least a horn player, you have directionality in your sound. Right. You know, yeah, sure, if you are if you have pads on it, it's leaking here and there. But but ultimately, you do have a bell and you have directionality. You know, if you're, if you're playing vibes, you, you the second you go to the gig and there's a microphone, you're already half as good as everybody else. Yeah. You're already coming from that. And I don't think many people have ever heard vibraphone in a situation where it can be its best. Very astute. I mean, that's the whole thing right there. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, our generation, we're loud. You know, we came up in the so-called rock era, you know, Mm -hmm. R&B era, whatever you want to call it, amplification. And I love it. I do that too. 
I grew up with it too. But you know, the optimal situation for vibraphone is guys got to play a certain way, certain level, dynamically, mm-hmm. can't really be that loud. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when you know, I was a big Milt Jackson fan, and you know, he came to like prominence. He became mm-hmm. famous with modern jazz quartet, right. and they played so, so quiet, soft, man. Yeah. It's like, like too soft, man. But it was great for That's hearing the vibraphone because Milt played. I think more than any other vibraphone player, he always played with extreme dynamics and nuance. Mm. I mean, with in every phrase, it was a, like a lot of loud and soft. It was just so dramatic and soulful. Well, but that's what the context I play in, I can't do that. Like, as much right. as I want to do it, yeah. because I, I, I just wind up, I just wind up playing full bore just to yeah. keep up with what's going on sonically around me. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I remember uh, being out on the road with you, and you had these big red mounts, mm-hmm. and you played these chords with these big red mounts. I was like, oh my god, that is the nicest thing. That sounds so good. And of course, I start playing, and immediately it was just like erased. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, can you go to those? I didn't know any better. You know, I'm just like, dude, we, you know, when you're playing with the other ones, I can hear the chords. And, and and then all of a sudden, by the end of the gig, it's just like, ding, 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 ding. There's <laughs> just like nothing there, you know. But no, but I remember we there were some quieter songs we played where I could really hear the vibes. And it was just like, wow, you know. But it, it's it's like you play an instrument that I'm not going to say it's not a testosterone instrument because it really is when it's in the right sonic circumstances. But you came up in an era where basically that even an acoustic sonic circumstance was had turned into like an NFL brawl in terms of the sure. amount of sheer volume and energy that people were putting out. And if you go and you listen to like those Tito Puente recordings or you listen to the Cal Jader stuff, you listen to um, like you were talking about the Modern Jazz Quartet and the stuff of Lionel Hampton even, the vibes are one of the loudest things in the group a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Guys aren't going... Could be a big band, but those Absolutely. cats still play with dynamics because yeah. they're coming from the era of being in a recording studio behind a singer. And one microphone. You dig? Yeah. So they knew about dynamics where that's not so much a consideration with our generation. Um, the vibraphone has become a different instrument now. You know, and sometimes it's an instrument I don't want to play mm. just because of the reasons we're citing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I did a gig last year with one of my favorite musicians on the planet, one of my best friends, Victor Bailey, mm. and Lenny White was a drummer, and it was rarefied air, man. I was I on sure, Seventh yeah. Heaven, but the instrument was not working. It was mm-hmm. just not working in the context, you know. And, you know, those guys were very supportive and they loved what I was doing, but, you know, they were frustrated with it too. I could see it. Yeah. Not with what I was playing, but just sonically. Right. It wasn't laying in the right place for the way they wanted to play. You know, because Victor, you know, he opens up on bass at a certain point, you know. It's, it's huge. Wide dynamic yeah. range and it gets really loud, you know. And, you know, Lenny, he's oh, a yeah. powerhouse. Sure. He's a powerhouse. So what wound up happening. I want to play vibes and piano on the gig because Lenny wanted to hear the weight of that piano for the comping. Got you. You know, I would do soloing mainly on vibes, but Lenny was like, "Play piano." <laughs> he was waving me over to the piano, you know, and I, I wouldn't do it all the time because you know Victor wanted vibes mm. in the quartet. You know, it was Alex Foster on saxophone. It was just a quartet, mm. but you know, it just pointed out to me. It's like, wow, this this is a I'm at a funny point in my career 
regarding this instrument because it's not serving the purpose. It's not. It's not what I want it to be. Mm. You know, it's not. It hasn't evolved along with the music. It's like gone in different directions because I can't play with nuance. You know, I mean, you basically half of your game is taken away from you before you even play a note. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know the feeling of that with my instrument. Sure. I go and I play with other guitar players, which I don't do that much anymore because I just like, I don't have speedy licks. I have time and maybe (laughs) some blues and a little bit of soul and occasionally a chord change. And it's all in the counterpoint. Right. And if I'm playing with someone like that, the second I, it's like half of my game is gone. You know, it's a downer. I know. I know. And, you know, and the, the thing is, is like, I mean, I truly believe in, in uh, you know, it's funny, you were mentioning Steve Vai earlier, mm-hmm. but my guitar teacher growing up was Joe Satriani. Oh, really? That's okay. the guy who, and I've told this to mm-hmm. a number of people in these interviews, they all laugh, what? Great guitar teacher. He was fantastic. He was the guy in my town who you went, you took your $8 check and you got a half an hour guitar lesson from him, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember him telling me, you know, no matter what people tell you, there is an audience for your music. Mm. Whatever your music may be, there is an audience. And at that time, he had gone like deep in debt on a bunch of credit cards and his wife's credit card to make this record that was like his first solo record. I don't know what it's called, but it ended up being the thing that that he created this whole kind of rock, instrumental rock guitar star kind of niche for himself. And mm-hmm. it worked. Yeah. That didn't exist before he, he did that. And so I always, and, and I always tried, no matter how, you know, if I get down because something isn't working out the way I want it to, which is happens often enough for everybody. But, you know, sure. I, I always keep that in mind is that, yes, your audience is out there. But the caveat is how hard is it to reach them? Right. How hard is it to reach them? That's and the if thing. you're playing an instrument that, you know, it's like the one who shrieks the loudest and the longest usually is the one that ends up on top. You know, if you're doing something that requires a lot of nuance and it requires the listener to be present. And I'm not talking about someone having to come to your gigs with like a protractor (laughs) and their beanie on. I mean, really like just come to the gig and be present, you know? Sure, sure. That's, it's crazy, that's a lot to ask these days. It is. You know? And I wrestle with that, you know, that's why I, I think musicians really got to invest some thought into bringing the music to the people. I mean, you don't want to compromise your art, but you don't want it to be, uh, you don't want to make it too difficult for the audience. I mean, the idea is for the audience to enjoy what you're doing. I agree. And you got to make some kind of concession to what's happening in our culture today. Mm, mm. Some kind of outreach. I mean, because in the past it was always done. People playing for dances. It was pop music. Yeah. You know. Hello. Even bebop in a lot of ways was kind of like you could equate that with indie rock in a lot of ways because Check it was not out. a main, main mainstream thing, but it had a very, very strong subculture that identified it with it very deeply. Very strong. You That's know, right. and I think what you're saying, and I totally agree with, is I mean, I could almost get like Berkeley communistic Marxist dialectic on it in a way because you have a thing where you music and musicians, it's like we were, you know, 
we entertained the tribe or a group of tribes that came together. We told the stories of the tribe or the tribes or the people or whatever it is. Sure. Then as things went on, we became more wandering minstrels or we became the gypsies who went from place to place playing music, telling these stories, right? Mm-hmm. And that goes on and on. You get up to Europe, you have somebody like Mozart who, or Bach who's like paid by a specific church to like be the dude, right? Mm-hmm. And you're making music for the glory of, of God. Right. Um, and, you know... It, it's really only very recently that we became a a guild, mm. more or less. And even more recently that you have all of this pedagogy where people are going to school. And I would like to say predominantly upper middle class people who can afford to go to music school. Yeah. And really, ultimately, I think, being a guitar player and coming from that more vernacular world, that our job really is to tell our people's tale whoever our people may be and you don't even know who your people are going to be your people are going to come from the darndest places but they are your people and it's our job I think Mm -hmm. to tell that story at least I feel like that purpose and don't get me wrong I love information like I did my best to learn to play Countdown and Giant Steps and all of those kind of hallmarks of the musician but ultimately for me I get really juiced playing for my people and playing with with whoever's in, you know what I mean it's like yeah. a thing we do together but I feel like the ex the dialectic part of it anyway is where it turns into a, a it like we were talking about earlier that whole music hustle thing with the academia and the grant writing and all that when does it come to the point where you have these intellectually trained musicians that it becomes an exclusively bourgeois pursuit exclusively right. for musicians and academics yeah when did that happen how does that, how does that, where does that end? Where does it end, right? How do you we change know? it? We need to change it. I mean, for survival, you know, of the form. Um, I remember going to the, not the original Birdland, but you remember when Birdland was uptown? That was probably before you came. Before my time, yeah. Yeah. I, I used to do gigs there, and I used to book name acts there as well. But I, I went there one night, I think my parents were in town, or some friends were in town, so I took them to Birdland, and this group was playing. I don't remember who it was. It wasn't a name act. And uh, they weren't acknowledging the audience. I was like, mm. there was no thank you. There was no bow. There was, it was nothing. No mm. smiles. I was like, wow, this is so cold. It's like this, this, all, it seemed like they were almost contemptuous of the audience. You know, yeah. You know, flashback again to when I was a kid. My band director took me to... Uh, it's a little bar in Cleveland. Uh, Hank Crawford was the headliner. Oh, yeah. And Johnny Lytle, vibe player, was on the bill. So Johnny opened the theme. And uh, I was probably underage, but I was in there with him. So it was cool. And I was just there to hear the music. Uh, it was kind of a dump. It was kind of a dump. Hank Crawford came out in a tuxedo. Mm. Lifted the vibe of the whole room. Right. You felt like you were at Radio City Music Hall. Man. Right. So that was a lesson I learned like it. 16. It's like, yeah. okay, your presentation, it matters. I mean, that's getting a little bit off the topic of no, the, the music. No, it's not at all. It's not at all. But it's, it's an integral part of it. Whatever your honest presentation of yourself might be in your aim to uplift the audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I totally agree with you 100% on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're totally, you, you're totally right. And I mean, it really is our job, like I think our Blakey said, to, to just wash away the dust. Of everyday life. Of everyday life, right. you know. And 
And that's and I remember something you said. I think we'll wrap it up with this, but you said to me many years ago, and I don't know who told it to you. I'm assuming maybe you did make it up, and so it's pretty genius. <laughs> but you said you, because I was just, I, I mean, I was still really young in my mental, you know, my musical uh, head when, when we were playing together. And, um, and I just was one night, and you were going, you know, you, that was okay, but you need to understand that you use the science at home to make the magic on the gig. Mm. Do you remember that, or did who? Do you remember who told you that? Because that stuck with me all. That these sounds years. like me. That's that's you. <laughs> well, congrats, because that stuck with me all these years. And I tell that to people all the time. And and that is a great thing to go by because if you if you're not making the science at home, you're not doing your job. Right. So you can make the magic when you get there, right? Absolutely. Monty Croft, get the phone, buddy. Love you. Thanks <laughs> okay, for doing the interview. You.